Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 174, Remembering the Boston Massacre. Hi, I'm Jake. This week marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, and I'm going to sit down with Nat Shidley, the president and CEO of Revolutionary Spaces, to talk about it. On the evening of March 5th, 1770, a party of British soldiers, representatives of law and order, fired into a crowd of civilians, killing five. It was a terrible, deeply personal tragedy in a small town of 15,000 residents, and it almost immediately became politicized. Nat is going to remind us what happened on that terrible night, how tightly intertwined the lives of the soldiers and town residents were, and how every generation reinterprets what the tragedy means. But before we talk about the anniversary of the bloody massacre on King Street, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. We're relying on our special guest for both our book and event this week. In the middle of my interview with Nat Shiley, he points out how completely shocking the violence of the Boston Massacre would have been in such a small town. Not only did everyone in town know one another, but by early 1770, they all knew the occupying British soldiers as well. After about 18 months of living side by side, the locals and the Redcoats were tied together by commercial relationships, friendships, romances, and more. In describing these connections, Nat recommends the book The Boston Massacre, A Family History by Serena Zabin, which was just published a couple of weeks ago. I haven't had a chance to pick it up yet, but based on Nat's recommendation and the buzz I've seen on Twitter, it sounds like a fascinating read. Here's the publisher's description. The story of the Boston Massacre, when on a late winter evening in 1770, British soldiers shot five local men to death, is familiar to generations. But from the very beginning, many accounts have obscured a fascinating truth. The massacre arose from conflicts that were as personal as they were political. Professor Serena Zabin draws on original sources and lively stories to follow British troops as they're dispatched from Ireland to Boston in 1768 to subdue the increasingly rebellious colonists. And she reveals a forgotten world hidden in plain sight the many regimental wives and children who accompanied these armies. We see these families jostling with Bostonians for living space, finding common cause in the search for a lost child, trading barbs, and sharing baptisms, becoming, in other words, neighbors. When soldiers shot unarmed citizens in the street, it was these intensely human, now broken bonds that fueled what quickly became a bitterly fought American Revolution. We'll have a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 174. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring the commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre. There will be a special event on March 5th, the actual anniversary, as well as a full day of programming on Saturday, March 7th. Not only that, but Revolutionary Spaces will be basing an entire year's worth of programming around the anniversary as well. To learn more, you're going to have to be patient and stay tuned. Nat will give you all the details toward the end of our conversation. But before we hear from Nat Shidley, it's time for a word from the sponsor of this week's podcast. Liberty & Co. sells unique products inspired by the American Revolution, many of which have themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past, including the Bloody Massacre on King Street. 
One of the unique products that Liberty & Co. offers is an exclusive Candles of the Revolution series. And they're introducing a new candle just in time for the 250th anniversary of the massacre. The bloody Boston Massacre candle will smell like musket fire, and it'll be molded into a skull-shaped glass jar. Experts say that the sense of smell is closely tied to memory, so imagine remembering the Boston Massacre with this unique new offering. If candles aren't your thing, you can also get a Bloody Boston Massacre t-shirt, which bears a design of four coffins that was originally created by Paul Revere to remember the victims of the massacre. Or you could opt for a coffee mug bearing the likeness of John Adams and the phrase, Facts are stubborn things, which Adams made famous as part of his defense of the Redcoats against murder charges. Whichever massacre merch strikes your fancy, you can get 20% off of any order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use the discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Revolutionary Spaces is a brand new organization that came storming into the Boston history scene last month. Formed out of an administrative merger between Old South Meeting House and the Old State House, this new organization is taking on a mission beyond what either site could do alone. The founding president and CEO of Revolutionary Spaces is Nat Shidley, and he's joining us today to talk about the new organization, the Boston Massacre, and the meaning that the 250th anniversary of the massacre holds in today's Boston. Nat Shidley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We've invited you here, at least in part, to talk about the new organization that you're heading up here in Boston that comes from a merger between two very long-time uh, Boston history staples. So the, the new organization's called Revolutionary Spaces. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that organization is going to do and where the idea of this merger came from? Sure. Yeah, Revolutionary Spaces is a brand new organization on the Boston cultural landscape. Um, it came to life on January 1st of this year, and it's formed through the merger of the Bostonian Society, which was founded back in 1881 to care for the old state house and to preserve it from destruction. And Old South Association in Boston, which was formed a few years before the Bostonian Society to preserve Old South Meeting House. So both of those organizations had been in existence for a very long time, um, had devoted themselves in very constructive ways to preserving these incredibly important historic sites that link our city to our past um, and that are visited by hundreds of thousands of visitors coming to Boston each year. But the merger came about as the result of a conversation about what the deep stories are that live in the buildings. And, you know, the buildings have significance for many periods of American history, but they're most significant for the role that they played in the American Revolution. And the two buildings really each contain a story that is only partly contained within their walls and can be better told by including the story of its partner just two blocks away down Washington Street. So the old state house um, or the townhouse, as it was called at the time of the revolution, was the seat of formal politics, the seat of 
provincial government. It had begun in 1713 as the place also where the town meeting happened, but that had moved out to Faneuil Hall. But it was the place where the elected representatives of the towns of Massachusetts gathered, where the royally appointed governor met with um, the provincial council. Um, so it was the seat of formal politics. And during the revolutionary period, the people who had office, who did their work in that building, had constantly to grapple with the folks they were in some way trying to represent. I mean, think of the American Revolution as a long conversation about the nature of representation. Um, and so the people out of doors, as it was often termed in the 18th century, were of vital significance to what happened in the townhouse. Um, and the people out of doors gathered in many places. And um, Old South Meeting House was an incredibly significant gathering place for many reasons, but in part because it was the largest indoor space in all of Boston. So when the town... Um, couldn't fit in Faneuil Hall because there was a meeting of such importance that so many people wanted to turn up. Um, they always went to Old South Meeting House to gather. Um, so many of the most significant political gatherings that the folks in the townhouse were trying to respond to were happening just down the street. Um, and you know, to the extent that we felt like the, the most precious resource either organization had was this deep story about the genesis of some of our most important American ideals and questions, we felt like we could tell the story better. We'd have a more powerful resource if we could tell it together, if we could create one seamless visitor experience spanning the two sites. The interpretation at each of the two sites right now is very different. The Old South seems to very much focus on sort of the freedom of speech, the open uh, forum aspect of their history. And the Old State House focuses more on revolutionary history. How much of that experience of the museum guest will change with this merger? So, yes, you're right about that. And I think there's other differences as well. I mean, one of the things that struck us um, when we started looking at this at the board level and at the staff level was um, that both organizations had built strengths that were complementary rather than duplicative. So Old South had invested a lot in really engaging evening programming and lectures that would draw local audiences in to have um, interesting conversations about current issues and their relationship to the past. And um, at the old state house, we had invested in the, the experience that visitors had during the daytime hours when folks walking the freedom trail stepped in off the trail and said, well, what can I do in here? And, you know, every day, 13 or 14 um, programs are happening, tours and plays and exhibits and, um, and that sort of thing. So it felt like, you know, just at, on, at the level of the nature of the programming, there was a great synergy. Um, but back to your question about um, the different frame for interpretation, what I would say is this, I, I think the the commitment to the free speech mission is part and parcel of the commitment the Revolutionary Spaces has um, in the way that we approach 
um, the the public history work. So this is public history work. The organization will be doing public history work that is only partly about helping people understand the past better, the revolutionary period or, or other eras in American history. It's really about using the past to give people a better and deeper understanding of the present and to provide our audiences with a new set of tools that they might take in hand to do the work of building a better, a more just and more equitable future for our city and for our country. And I think, you know, the work, what is the work? What is the nature of that work? It's really about engaging people with the ongoing work of our democracy. Um, so that story I was alluding to before that spans the two sites, the tension between the formal work of politics and the popular politics um, that happened at the two different sites, um, that really adds up to a story of the genesis of a set of questions that were vital to the revolutionary moment, but that continue to define our public life today. Um, so those questions... They're about representation, but not in the like, oh, I'm sitting in my high school civics class and I'm kind of getting bored here because I know all about the three branches or whatever. It's not it's not just that. It's fundamental questions that animate us every day. Right. Um, who speaks for me? How is my voice going to be heard? What is my recourse if my voice is silenced, right? And this bumps up against mm -hmm. the free speech issue, right? That's one of the rights that we have. And it's what we count on people in this democracy to do is to use their right to speak. Um, but most fundamentally, we have an idea that we're, we live in a representative democracy and our founding documents say we the people. Um, but we don't really have a standing agreed upon answer to who belongs to that circle of we, right? So the way I sometimes talk about this, I find it helpful to say um, that the revolutionary generation gave us a set of questions. Um, and yes, they gave us their answers, but I think it's really important that we understand that the answers for that era were sharply contested and pleased some and really angered others. But it's really the work of of our, of it's the work of people today to revisit those questions and to define the answers for our own time. And every generation of Americans have done that. Um, so, you know, what we really want to do is, is design deeply engaging programming, thought provoking programming, programming that uses contemporary lenses to open up the past in surprising ways in order to bring people together to continue the work of talking about what we mean when we say we the people. Um, and I hope to do that in a way that makes all people from all backgrounds all across our increasingly diverse city feel welcome in the conversation, feel like they have a stake in the conversation and feel like the story that flows out of these buildings is their story too. Um, and I think if we can do that, we can really play a role in turning the corner in Boston um, and and really embracing the growing diversity of our city and the region. Before we delve too deeply into what happened on the night of March 5th, 1770, and how that event's remembered across American history, can you just remind our listeners sort of what happened to lead up to the event we remember as the Boston Massacre? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. And, you know, 
the old history professor in me um, wants to know, like, how far out should I zoom here? Um, I, I think sometimes um, it's useful just to remind folks um, of the mm-hmm. sweep of the growing crisis, right? So um, if we go back to 1763, um, at the end of the Seven Years' War, um, the colonies in North America had fought for the empire in this global conflict against France. Um, Britain had won that conflict. France had surrendered all of its territory in the eastern half of North America. And you have to, if you, if you, if you can't really grasp what a pivotal moment that felt like and how fantastic that was, you can't really understand how surprising it was that just, you know, seven years later in 1770, civilians are being gunned down by, by redcoats in, um, in King Street in Boston. And think about, um, you know, at the end of the Cold War, the incredible, um, outpouring of joy that we experienced in many corners of this country, right? We've, how after a decades long struggle um, that felt like it would never end, suddenly there is an end to this thing that has defined our world and has constrained us. And boy, are we going to have a, a future that feels like it's defined by peace and prosperity for all, right? The sky is the limit. That's what it felt like in Boston in 1763, right? We've been sending men off to bleed in these wars for more than a century. And it's over and the world is safe for trade and for prosperity and we are going to grow within the british empire and if you stepped outside the townhouse into the very square where blood would be spilled on march 5th 1770 and asked people you know what does it feel like to be a british subject are you happy people would have said how deeply proud they were. And if you'd asked them why, they would have said, because to be a Briton is to be among the freest people on earth, right? Um, and that is that incredible excitement about being part of a growing British empire and Boston's place in that growing empire was shattered in a very short period of time so that, you know, from the balcony of the old state house in July of 1776, mm-hmm. folks are reading the Declaration of Independence. And it's shattered really by three hammer blows. And one of them is the Stamp Act crisis that comes in 1765, um, when Parliament tries to impose an internal tax on the North American colonies and people basically freak out. Um, then that crisis is resolved. And the second hammer blow is um, a series, a new series of taxes passed um, in 1767, 68. Um, and that's the immediate context for what will uh, deliver us to um, the Boston massacre. And before I go down that road, the third hammer blow is really um, it's the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor and the British response to that, especially the Massachusetts Government Act um, and the the pathway to war, which comes right after. So those I mean, just think of it as three acts in this drama and we're in the middle act. Yeah. So act two um, is it's really provoked by um, a series of taxes that very um uh, somebody without great marketing sensibility decided to call the Townsend duties, uh, cause they were named for Charles Townsend, the chancellor of the exchequer. 
Um, and they're really a series of import duties, right? So the colonists in the first round uh, in the argument over the Stamp Act had said, well, we agree that you can regulate trade because that's the nature of the empire, but you just can't impose internal taxes. So in 1767, Parliament turns around and says, great, you said we can regulate trade. So here's a whole set of duties on trade. Um, and, you know, they're definitely gunning for Boston, which had demonstrated itself to be at the forefront of protest. Um, and we know that they're gunning for Boston and, and everyone in Boston knew that because they created a new customs service in order to enforce the trade duties. And think of the North American seaboard. They stationed the entire customs <laughs> service in Boston, which is not right. exactly in the center. Right. So they're sending a message like, OK, Boston, we mean taxes for everyone, but we especially mean it for you. And, you know, if you were in Boston, you didn't much like that, right? You're like, okay, well, you're trying to pick a fight with us. And so game on, right? So Bostonians did what they tend to do. They found all sorts of creative ways to say no. Um, what had worked in the Stamp Act era had been essentially to nullify the enforcement of the act, right? Just make it impossible to enforce the thing. It's easy with the Stamp Act. There was one guy in the entire colony whose job it was to enforce the Stamp Act. You just intimidate the heck out of that person. He resigns. Nobody wants to take the job. It's a dead letter. Done. A lot harder with these duties, um, but there are things that people could do. One thing that um, that folks wanted to do was essentially boycott. Right? There was no word called boycotting at, at that time, but they, um, the merchants in town agreed, there was a merchants association and they agreed to adopt a set of non-importation agreements. Everybody voluntarily signed on, um, uh, or not everybody, but many merchants voluntarily signed on to not importing um, luxury goods from, uh, from England, from the British Isles and, um, letting their displeasure be known in that way. We don't realize what a stunning thing this would have been and how disruptive to daily life it might have been until we think about the fact that in Boston, a town of 15,000 people, there were in 1768 when these things went into force about 500 retail businesses. So I once did this math that that's actually the number of shops in the Mall of America <laughs> in Minneapolis, right? So like the greatest mall in America and this and teeny tiny town, right? A little town of 15,000 people and everyone selling stuff, right? So people were making money by buying stuff that people didn't want to make for themselves and didn't have to anymore. Nice fabric, soap, candles, glass. I mean, everything that you could want Somebody was bringing in on a ship and then it was being resold at like, you know, I might have a, a cobbler shop and I make shoes, but I'm also selling tea over here because, you know, I can make a little extra on the side. So, boy, to put in place these non-importation agreements threatened people's livelihoods at a really fundamental level. And some shopkeepers really didn't want to do it and, in fact, couldn't do it without going out of business and losing their own economic independence. So what do you going to do that non-importation agreements only work if they're universal. So um, folks in town organized to picket outside of the shops that were not abiding by the non-importation agreements. And I'm pointing that out because we tend to read back from the period of the war that this is some kind of binary struggle between um, the good guys on one side and the British on the other, <laughs> the bad guys. But actually, you know, a lot of the struggle was 
colonists pitted against each other, right? So that was one track was the, like, we've got to enforce these non-importation agreements. And then there was a much more confrontational track, um, which was um, in the streets uh, and usually targeted at the customs officers. So um, my favorite episode related to this um, comes in uh, the summer of 1768 when there's a British naval vessel in town, um, the Romney, actually, that impounds one of John Hancock's ships, a sloop called the Liberty, on suspicion of having carried smuggled goods, right? Um, Hancock was pretty clearly a smuggler, and he <laughs> he was running Madeira in, in these giant casks called pipes, um, and then offloading them at night before he officially reported into the harbor master, and then showing up like, hey, I've got an empty ship. Can I offload the three tiny chests that are still in here? And the customs officers were like, yeah, right. Okay. We don't believe that. Um, and at one point, they impound his, his ship, the Liberty. And, you know, at this point, Hancock's beloved in town uh, for many reasons, but he's you know, he's funding the protest movement. He's inclined to, you know, like just haul off and, and open casks of Madeira on the common and tell people, come on, have what you want, or like, we're going to have a pig roast. And mm -hmm. he was ingratiating himself to the crowd. So um, the crowd turns out to defend Hancock's ship and, and to let their displeasure of the customs officers be known. Um, and they, unfortunately, they find out that the ship has been lashed to the Romney, which is a gigantic British naval vessel. And they're like, we're not going to be able to row out there and do anything about it. Um, so now they're really angry um, and they find their way to a wharf where one of the customs officers has what's described in the records as a pleasure mm -hmm. vessel. I mean, it's a small sailing ship, but you know, a small <laughs> sailing ship is big, right? They haul it out of the water. They take the darn thing out of the water. They carry it more than a mile over land to the Liberty Tree, right? Which is, you know, a pretty far down, like it's at the, the, the edge of Chinatown today, right? Where Washington Street and Essex Street intersect. And they try it under the Liberty Tree for crimes against the country and they find it guilty. And then, you know, in the great Boston tradition, burn what are you going to do after you found the ship guilty? Well, you're going to burn it. <laughs> right? So they, they take it to the common and they disassemble it <laughs> stave by stave. And, and then they burn it in a giant bonfire. And then they go over to Old South Meeting House to have a, a conversation about how fantastic that was and what they're going to do next. And, you know, over in the townhouse, the governor and the elite men who sit on the council are like pulling their hair out. Like, what are we going to do? This is a lawless town. What are we going to do? And so that's the second track, right? You've got the non-importation agreements. You've got the, like, we're taking it right to the customs officers and destroying their property. Let them know how, how angry we are. And then the third track was we're fomenting intercolonial cooperation, right? So in the Stamp Act crisis in 1765, Massachusetts had called for a joint uh, a joint Congress of the colonies to talk about how to coordinate their resistance to the Stamp Act. So this time, the assembly in Massachusetts, the um, 
House of Representatives, it was called the lower house of the great and general court, um, sends a circular, circular letter out to all the other colonies saying, hey, we don't much like these Townsend duties things and we don't think you do either. So we ought to be watchful and vigilant and share information and coordinate on how to resist. And back in England, um, you know, they're they're livid, right? The ministry can't believe that this is happening. And they send instructions to the governor. They say, okay, uh, any of you who are going to allow your assemblies to accept the circular letter um, are going to be in big trouble. We're going to ask you to dissolve those assemblies. And hey, in Massachusetts, Governor Bernard, um, tell them to rescind it. And if they don't um, prorogue the assembly and tell them there's no elected representatives in this year. Sorry. Um, and in Massachusetts, they refuse. They they vote by a vote of 92 to 17 to refuse to rescind the circular letter. And now Bernard's got his tail between his legs. And I go, oh, great, I got to dissolve this thing. And I know I'm going to make everybody angry. Um, and so he's secretly writing off to the ministry suggesting that, boy, this is really a lawless town. And it would be so helpful if we had the army here to make it a town of law and order again. Um, so, you know, that's a long wind up to say uh, in the ministry, they are starting to think about how to use the army as a police force. And in October of 1768, they sent four regiments of the British army into Boston. Back in episode 100 of our show, uh, J.L. Bell, a local historian, joined us and, and talked a little bit about the occupation that started in 17, fall of 1768 and what that meant for the town of Boston. And part of what it led to is just this increasing series of conflicts. You have these young men, locals and redcoats just bumping into each other in the streets in all these different ways. So how did this sudden influx of regular troops in Boston sort of up the tension instead of diffusing it? I mean, I think we've we've learned this lesson over and over again in the 20th and 21st centuries, right? Armies don't make mm -hmm. great peacekeeping forces. Um, they are not great um, it keeping a, a town occupied by the army is not necessarily the best way to make everybody calm down. Um, and it, I mean, the first thing we have to do is get a sense of the scale, right? So four regiments of the British army, and they don't all stay, but at the beginning, four regiments, it's like 4,000 soldiers. Remember, it's a town of 15,000 people, right? So if we gathered, you know, what we gathered, um, if we gathered 15 people, we'd have to add four soldiers alongside right, us right. and we'd have a full group, right? I mean, that's like everywhere you went, there were, there were soldiers. They were just, there were huge numbers of them. Um, and I think, um, I think it's true that they caused a tremendous amount of friction. Um, but I think it's also important for us to recognize that at a day to day level, there were a whole lot of things going on. Um, Serena Zabin, who's a historian um, out at Carleton College, who is has just published a book um, about the Boston Massacre. Is that uh, a family history of the Boston Massacre? Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's a fantastic book. And she's been working on it for a while. And she's she's gone down to the records, to the individual regiments and the records of individual soldiers. And, and by recovering all the names, 
um, she's been able to go into the town records, mm. the marriage records, the baptismal records, the tax records, um, where uh, individuals aren't necessarily identified as soldiers, but she's now able to say, oh, that marriage is between a young woman of Boston and a British soldier who's arrived as part of, as of this peacekeeping force, right? So, so yes, they're, they're generating tension, but they are also marrying into the town, starting families, becoming part of small town life. And they're stitching together in the way that British um, forces do wherever they're stationed around the empire. They're making a home for themselves in this place. So, you know, I'm, one, I'm one now. One thing I've read is that, yeah. that that sense of settling in could actually have a double edged, could be a double edged sword because British soldiers could often have jobs on the side. They could go and work for cash. And in a town like Boston that was already struggling somewhat at the, under the Townsend Acts, they had a second salary as a member of the military, so they could often undercut local laborers for for some forms of work. So it, they're settling in, making lives for themselves. Some elements of that then put them in further conflict with the locals, it seems like. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's definitely economic competition, especially at the sure. bottom of the wage scale um, for unskilled jobs, especially on the rope walks and other places. Um, and, and that's part of the story of how things come to a head in March of 1770. Um, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned the, the sort of stitching together that's happening too, because I think it helps us to understand the incredible emotional impact of that episode of violence that happens unexpectedly on the night of March 5th, 1770. Um, I mean, we just have to remember in a town of 15,000, every single person mm -hmm. heard about it quickly. And knew somebody who was lying in the street that night. But we also forget that almost everybody knew someone who'd fired a weapon um, and who was on the other side of the conflict and felt connected to them through bonds of business or friendship or marriage. So, um, you know, it's it's an internecine struggle and it's incredibly powerful when it happens. And so there's just this ripping apart that happens in the aftermath of that episode of violence that I don't think until Serena's book, um, we've really fully come. Well, I'll definitely have to with. check out the book, the a family history of the Boston massacre. Maybe we'll have to make that our Boston book club pick this week. So you mentioned the conflict at the, at the rope walk uh, or at the rope walks leading up to the events of March 5th. And I feel like that's part of, sort of the sudden uptick in violent confrontations that happens right at the beginning, beginning of 1770 from uh, the death of Christopher Sider in February and then conflicts at the, at the rope walks uh, two weeks later. And then less than a week after that, we have the bloody massacre in King street. Do you have any sense of what caused this sudden increase in sort of violent confrontations between townsfolks and and redcoats at that time. It is just a series of events that are building on each other. But I think, um, you know, the events that you've mentioned quite rightly, um, they bring together the increasing tension between townsfolk and the soldiers and the increasing tension mm -hmm. among townsfolk themselves. So at the very end of February, 
um, the, the incident that culminates with the killing of Christopher Sider, an 11 year old boy, um, it begins with, um, a picket line outside one of the small shops that is in non-compliance with those non-importation agreements. Um, Theophilus Lilly in the North End is continuing to sell imported tea and other things. Um, and some of the, the Sons of Liberty, um, Liberty Boys, are, are gathered outside picketing and shouting and making it extremely uncomfortable for any customer to go inside. And Lilly's um, not... A British soldier. He's not an officer of the customs service. He's just a fellow He's, townsperson in Boston who's trying to make a living. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, he's, he's increasingly become seen as a supporter of crown authority. And, you know, there's, there's deep political, uh, divides that lead some shopkeepers to be singled out more than others. Um, but, but what happens in that incident is one of Lily's neighbors, Ebenezer Richardson, who is a longtime informant for the customs service and very um, uh, seen as a sort of suspicious figure by many um, who are in the Whig movement, um, comes out and tells the crowd to disperse. And they're more than happy to relocate to his front door. And they, now they're standing outside Ebenezer Richardson's house and they're throwing rocks through his windows and making him feel extremely um, uncomfortable and unsafe. And he's not one to back down. So he comes to the door and sticks a gun out and says, get out of here. Or I'm going to fire on you. And he, in fact, pulls the trigger um, and a musket ball rips through the the face and chest of this 11 year old boy, right, who um, dies later that night. And um, that tragedy right now, remember, small town, everybody hears by word of mouth really quickly. Um, it's it's you know, it's an incredible tragedy. And um, here's a young person caught up in the charged political events of the time who gave his life way too soon, um, who didn't sign up for having a musket ball go through his chest. And um, when he's buried not many days later, it is the, you know, it's the biggest funeral that Boston has seen. There's 2000 people turn out for what is, you know, it's, it's the, um, for the, the informal power structure that is constituting itself, it's like a state funeral, right? It's the whole town um, participates in mourning him in a very official way. So that's part of the context and the residual anger over that, right? Somebody associated with the customs service has killed one of our own and this boy didn't deserve it and somebody's going to have to pay. So now that's hanging in the air. Um, and then just a few days later, there's this, um, there's this well publicized brawl at Samuel Gray's rope walk where, um, you know, some of the British soldiers who are, um, you know, on their days off looking to make a little extra money by taking up day jobs, um, come by and, um, you know, they're, they're asked if, you know, do you, do you want a job? And one of them says, yeah. And, and, um, you know, one of the rope workers says, well, great. Then you can clean out my latrine. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're ribbing each other, but in a very aggressive way. And, um, 
and the soldiers come back with their buddies and then the rope workers come back with their buddies and pretty soon there's a giant fist fight and people get hot and people get hurt. Um, and some of those who will face off on the night of March 5th, just two days later, um, are folks who were, you know, beating each other in the face at that rope walk incident. So there's definitely some bad blood that carries over. Um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a year and a half of living cheek by jowl too close together and beginning to get tired yeah, the, of the, the massacre itself often almost gets lost in its own weight of history. It's easier to see from the rope walk brawls. I think how it's almost just a, a family squabble writ large or spun out of control where, you know, we, they're working side by side. Often the wrong thing gets said. And then you have two sides, you know, huge crowd going after each other with the cudgels they're using for to, to beat rope fibers with. And then two nights later, we sort of do the same thing with guns. So I guess the massacre doesn't come out of nowhere. So we set the stage a little bit. What actually happened in King Street on the night of March 5th? Why was there a sentry at the townhouse in the first place? And then who was the crowd that started gathering there? And where did it all go wrong? Yeah, there's other people who can tell this story in, in a much more dramatic way than I. But, um, but you know, it is a dramatic moment. Um, so I think it's helpful to to just be mindful of the fact that the place where this happens is what passes for a town square in Boston. It's the, it's the place where, you know, two dozen times a year, there's a formal holiday that ends with somebody reading some sort of official proclamation or saying some sort of celebratory comments from the balcony of the townhouse. Um, the town, this is a public space, the town square where people gather, um, right under the balcony of the old state house. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, on a moonlit night in the middle of March, when people are feeling cooped up from being inside with all of the cold weather and, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity to get out a little bit, um, there are people in the square and young, actually not that young, but Hugh White, uh, 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 Sentry is standing outside the customs house, which is sort of kitty corner across the plaza from the old state house. Um, and there's a sentry box there and there's always someone stationed on duty. There's always back and forth between, um, between the Whigs and the soldiers and they tend to heckle each other. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the people that's in the square that night is a wig maker's apprentice who starts, um, who starts shouting at a passing officer and complaining that his commanding officer has not made good on his debt to, um, to the wig maker, to the apprentice's master and is essentially questioning whether he's good for it. And, um, you know, he's questioning the, the honor of this gentleman, right? So this soldier and, uh, Hugh White doesn't much like that. And he calls the apprentice over to have a few words with him and they, have hot words and Hugh White um, uses his musket to push the apprentice away, who then turns around and runs to his friend and says, did you see that? I got smashed in the mouth by that musket. Now, you know, depending on the eyewitness, um, he was either, you know, 
smashed hard with the butt of the weapon or he made a big deal out of nothing. But, you know, here he is now saying, I'm I'm hurt. I'm hurt. Look at the blood. Oh, my God. And people start to gather. And okay, now there's a bunch of people who want to take it to Hugh White and um, and they go and start, you know, talking to him, giving him uh, uh, their thoughts. And now they started to make a scene. And so the people passing through the square start to gather in numbers. And now you've got several dozen people. And at a certain point, someone has the idea, and there are different theories around this. Um, maybe it was prearranged, or maybe it was just an idea that came in the moment, but someone has the idea of going and ringing the bells, right? So this is part of town that has churches everywhere, and the townhouse itself has a bell. Um, someone starts pulling on uh, on a bell rope and tolling a bell, which in Boston, a town that is, you know, by 1770 had had, I don't know, five or six great fires, right? They said, oh my God, right. the, that fire wasn't anything like this one. This is the great fire, including a terrible fire in 1760 that threatened the whole neighborhood where this event is happening, right? So Bostonians turn out when the bells ring in the middle of the night because that's the signal that somebody's got man the bucket brigade so now people are pouring out trying to figure out what's going on and what they don't see a fire but they see a crowd of people arguing with a soldier and now people are really pressing into the square and it's getting really tense and the guardhouse immediately adjacent to the townhouse sees this um the officer on duty that night captain thomas preston decides to uh to make a foray out into the crowd with a detachment of soldiers. So he picks the biggest, most in physically intimidating men he can find because he knows they're going to be in for a little bit of a struggle. Um, I think the fairest reading of the evidence from that night is that he explicitly does not have them load their weapons before they go out. He takes them out. He puts them in a defensive semicircle between the crowd and the soldiers. And he's standing, and this is very much different from the famous engraving um, done <laughs> by <laughs> by Paul Revere. He's, um, he's standing between the the soldiers... And the crowd pleading with the crowd, disperse. We don't want any trouble. We want to move out of this space. We want to bring an end to this conflict. Um, but you know, the crowd's picking up, um, you know, that horrible melted and refrozen snow that you get in Boston by <laughs> March. And some of it's got like frozen horse filth in it, or it's got oyster shells and they're lobbing things at the soldiers and they're not dispersing. And so what is Preston going to do? He keeps pleading with them. And at a certain point, he says, um, you know, I'm going to ask these soldiers to load their weapons now. We really mean it. And he has them all load. Um, and now he's got a real challenge on his hands because he's actually prohibited from having those soldiers use violence by the riot act. Uh, literally, somebody, ha a town, a civil official has to come and read the riot act to the town before the military can use force. They have to declare it an unlawful assembly. And you can bet there's not a single civil official in Boston in 1770 who was going to read the riot act, right? So here's right. Preston. Now he's got his men with charged weapons and the crowd's getting even angrier and things just keep getting more more and more tense until, you know, there's a group of sailors who 
push in at the very last moment and come right up and adopt an extremely confrontational attitude and somebody's musket goes off, right? So everybody's yelling fire, 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 right? It's not Preston who's yelling fire, but the crowd is yelling fire because of the bells and nobody can tell what's going on and somebody's weapon goes off and all the soldiers, uh, we, you know, you would guess, um, and they recount uh, assumed that somebody had given the order and they hadn't heard it and they all discharge. Um, so there's a volley of, uh, of nine, uh, musket balls that go off into the crowd and they go through people. So more than nine people are struck. Um, but three fall dead almost immediately. One's wounded badly enough that he's going to die that night and another will die, um, a week or two later of wounds sustained that evening. So, um, you know, just a terrible moment um, that I don't think anyone wanted or could have predicted. Almost as soon as the smoke clears that night, you start to have the battle for how that event's going to be framed in the moment and then remembered for posterity. I guess the question to me is how, why do we remember the Boston Massacre as the Boston Massacre and not as just an another one of Boston's many riots that got a little bit out of hand? I think that's a great question, but I want to put in a plea before I answer that question to just carve out a small moment for us to imagine what it felt like. Um, and, and I mean this because I think, I think our standard narrative of the massacre is how did it come to happen? And then what were the political consequences of it or the cultural consequences? Mm -hmm. And what we forget is what the lived experience was. And this, this hit me so profoundly in 2013, um, when, you know, in that horrible act of violence, the finish line of the Boston Marathon was bombed. Um, <clears throat> and just remember if you were in Boston at that time, what it felt like, um, you know, and this is a town of hundreds of thousands of people now, not a town of 15,000, but we were all knocked off kilter and there was an incredible emotional dimension, right? That there's an outpouring of grief. There was an outpouring of anger and of fear, but most, I think, prevalent was this, this sense of uncertainty, right? What happened? How could that happen? And what does it mean? And what's going to happen next? And there's this, we had that experience of living in that liminal space, right? Okay, <clears throat> that act of violence put an end to the world I lived in yesterday and all the rules that I thought I knew. And I know that we're going to construct a new world and a new set of rules and there's going to be new guidelines, <clears throat> but I don't know what those are yet. And I'm living in this space and I'm filling this space with reaching out to my neighbors and trying to connect with them. I'm filling this space with my own feelings of fear and grief. Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do something to help move the town forward and heal. And I think we owe it to ourselves to see that moment in March of 1770 as well, because Boston surely felt it. And, and I think the, the much of the story of how the town remembers after is bound up with the power of that moment. Um, and, and the political consequences are bound up with that moment too. And 
we this fall in in October we're going to bring back to the old state house a play um, called Blood on the Snow that tries to capture that feeling by looking at essentially one hour of real time in the council chamber the day after the Boston massacre while the governor members of the council and representatives from the town are trying to figure out how to work together to ensure that it doesn't get worse and you know. On that day, March 6th, there are rumors flying all around town that the country militias are going to march on Boston and drive the soldiers out by force of arms. And the town comes, <clears throat> the town holds a meeting in Faneuil Hall that grows so big, they move over to Old South Meeting House and they send delegations over to speak with the governor. And they twice come to the governor and say, you have to order the troops out. They have to leave town or there's going to be blood running in the streets tonight at a scale you can't imagine. You know, we, and we legitimately could have had the start of armed conflict in March of 1770 and the whole outcome would have been different, right? You wouldn't have had the strength of the intercolonial union, um, the, the Congress that comes later that helps to drive the American war effort. What would have happened? It would have been a very different story. Um, the governor says, Governor Hutchinson is the hero of the moment. Governor Hutchinson, who's spent his whole life trying to become governor, and at this moment, he's only acting governor, right? Because um, the previous guy who was responsible for the troops coming to town is sort of like, uh, I'm out of here. I, I got to go back and defend myself. People hate me in London, and, and I'm just leaving you all to your own devices. So Hutchinson has just stepped in to become acting governor, and his whole life has been about getting to this place of power and doing something for Boston with it. But here he is, and he knows I'm the civilian authority. I cannot order the troops out. So he says to the town, well, could you just give me two weeks? <laughs> I just need two weeks because I got to write a note to General Gage, who's the commanding officer, and he's in New York. And I got to get it down to New York. And then I got to wait for his answer to come back. So just sit tight and we'll see what we can do. But I don't have the authority. Um, and the town basically says, you know, that's not good enough because we can't be accountable for the way in which people might act on the anger that they feel. And so get the troops out. It's the only way to restore order. Um, and, and Hutchinson finds it in himself to see a pathway to doing this, believing that in so doing, he's given up his chance of becoming the, the real crown appointee as the governor. He thinks his political career is over, but he's, he wanted that job because he wanted to do what was right for Boston. He wanted to advance the interests of Massachusetts within the British Empire. And this is a moment where he really does the hard thing. Um, and, and those, that group of people who are antagonists, right? The, you know, some of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty, the Whig movement and the leaders of the, the governor's party, basically the, you know, Hutchinson and Andrew Oliver and the people around him, they find a way to gather, to make, to come together and make common cause. They also, I think, learn lessons from that experience that make it impossible for them to find a solution after the destruction of the tea in 1773. So Hutchinson learns like, oh boy, 
don't compromise because if you offer something, they take a they take much more. They take ten times as much as you thought you gave up, and so hold the line. And the Whigs learn, oh boy, if you just put pressure on Hutchinson, he's going to cave. And um, the result of those two lessons learned is that they they cannot find a way to resolve the crisis over the tea in 1773. But in 1770, there's this incredible moment. Um, where I think people rise to the, um, the challenge that's put before them by this horrible act of violence that nobody wanted and, um, that is causing the entire town to reel. And they, they try their best to bandage up Boston and to bandage up the British Empire. Um, so yes, the memory is important, but like we don't get it if we miss that human piece, just what it felt like. like what would it have felt like to have heard that news? Well, speaking of the, the human element, I guess one way to, to keep the focus on, on that element is to just introduce us to who the victims of the massacre were. The three, three people died that immediately, another one that night, and then a fifth, uh, uh, within a week, I believe, or within a couple of weeks. So who who were the victims of the Boston Massacre? Well, I should have notes in front of me because I'm going to forget <laughs> all of their names. But um, but I, you know, some of them really stood out and are are um, are folks who who have been a touchstone for memory over the long haul for Boston as well. You know, so Crispus Attucks is the victim who's probably best remembered today. Um, not necessarily because of the role he played in March of 1770, although he played a very important role, but because of the place he occupies in our ongoing conversation as Americans about, um, about we the people, right? So he was, um, a self-liberated former slave of mixed African and Native American ancestry, as were many, many people in Massachusetts in, um, the 18th century and had made his way to sea, um, just like Benjamin Franklin when he didn't like his apprenticeship in Boston, right? It's a, a time honored tradition of finding freedom on the waves. Um, but he had, uh, you know, he had been in and out of Boston for, um, for a couple decades in, um, as a sailor and a rope maker and, uh, dock worker and, and whatnot. Um, and, and, uh, by all eyewitness accounts, he's the first person to be fired upon. Um, other victims included Patrick Carr, who was notable to a later generation of Bostonians because, um, of his Irish ancestry. Samuel Maverick, who was especially remarked upon at the time, um, because he was just 17 years old when, um, when he died. Uh, Second so, time in just a couple of weeks that essentially a child's killed in Boston. That's right. That's right. And then the fourth who dies within the day is the last name is Gray, but I'm going to forget whether it was Samuel Gray or there's so many Grays. I, I think he's also a Samuel. I yeah, but he wasn't the rope. Was, people always confuse him with mm. the guy who owned the uh, the the rope walk where um, the fight had happened a few days gotcha. earlier, and he's not that one. There's there's this incredibly poignant passage in. The remembrance that Joseph Warren delivered in Old South Meeting House five years later on the anniversary of the Boston Massacre, where he asked the listener to walk with him for just a moment in their memories and in incredibly vivid detail describes like, 
here's the mother with the wailing child on her arm, looking at the spattered brains of the father who's lying in the street. Um, and, you know, that's the raw power of that moment. Um, I mean, it was a horrific act of violence. And we, you know, I often catch myself trying to say something like, we're celebrating the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, <laughs> but you wouldn't do that with an act of violence like this that was much more proximate in time. Like, you wouldn't celebrate 9-11. You know, you wouldn't celebrate the um, the horrible act of violence that happened in Ferguson in Missouri in 2016. Like, you, like we don't do that. And we only have the luxury of forgetting about hor- horrifying this was at a human level because of 250 years and we've made it part of our founding mythology. But those were real people who had real mothers and fathers and real wives and children and and their lives were lost. And, you know, we, we should remember that when we remember the massacre. And even with that in mind, even their contemporaries began to politicize their memories immediately. I think the the funerals can be seen as a political event in and of themselves. So they, you know, the, the biggest funeral had happened just weeks before for Christopher Sider. And now history repeats itself with these massive funerals for uh, the first three victims or first four victims. Yeah, that's right. Um, they, several of the bodies lie in state at Faneuil Hall for, um, for a few days before the funerals too. So everybody can come and see them and, process that this thing happened, right? That our own soldiers killed counts people in cold blood. And, um, and then there is an even larger group funeral, um, with all of the, you know, state honors that could be offered when you don't actually control the machinery of state. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is, you know, it's definitely a propaganda event. It's being leveraged by, um, leaders of the Whig movement in order to mobilize by them too, I think. Yep. And it's, you know, it's being used to mobilize support for their cause. There's other things that are happening even more quickly. So as the, as people try to figure out what actually happened, they realize that they ought to get out and collect depositions from eyewitnesses. The governor and the council are a little slow to realize the potential political use of those depositions, but the town is really fast. <laughs> They're like out there collecting depositions. And then they like within a really short period of time, they've got them all in print and bound and they're sending copies off to England to shape everyone's perception of what happened. And of course, all the eyewitness accounts that they collect are the ones that, that basically make it sound like um, the you know, the soldiers came out to wreak havoc and get even with the town and boy, was their blood up and they were really wanting to, to hurt some people. And, um, and there's even a, a, a 
a few depositions that say there was an extra gun that came out a window of the customs house behind the soldiers. And we know that's the customs officers (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, we boy, we've been trying to get rid of the customs service. And wouldn't it be nice if we could pin this on them and they'd have to be disbanded and we'd be free of the depredations of the darn customs officers. Um, So there's something very um, shrewd happening and the crown's sort of dopey and slow to on the uptake. And they, they later realize, oh, right, uh, we got to collect some depositions that make it sound like the crowd was the aggressor. And so they collect, you know, maybe a third as many or a quarter as many. And, but they number them sequentially along with the town, like the town did 105 depositions and then 100, 607 and so forth are, are the ones that the crown has collected. And they just put them all together and say, like, here, <laughs> go figure out what here you can do are. with that. Um, so, you know, people are working hard to shape how this is going to be perceived outside of Boston. I mean, the, it's a done deal in terms of how the town sees it, but how can you export your view of how horrifying this was um, without Twitter and without Facebook and without, you know, videos uploaded to YouTube? You, it's, well, it was the, a lot harder. The next, <laughs> the next best thing to some of those YouTube videos might be the imagery that's get, getting created very soon after the massacre with Henry Pelham and Paul Revere, even more famously, creating these images that tell a certain version of what happened on King Street. Yeah, poor Henry Pelham. <laughs> he <laughs> he did the image, he did the like a painstakingly constructed version of this that then Paul Revere um, pretty blatantly ripped off, I'd rips say. Rips it off, engraves <laughs> it, and mass produces it. And that's the one that everybody knows. But, um, you know, so it's worth thinking about the Revere one because it is the one right. that, that most people at the time saw and that most of us today have seen. You know, and, and Revere does some really shrewd things with that, right? So he's got, he's got, um, he, it's, you know, all of the civilians are dressed in the clothes that you would expect genteel members of society to be wearing. Um, they're not the motley rabble that really was there that night. You know, there's, they're, they're just good civilians going about their business. And if you look, if you follow a line from where the crowd is, from where the civilians are straight up, there's a steeple or the tower of the first church sort of back behind the townhouse. Um, the townhouse is right in the middle standing for the law, right? The law is what separates the good folk from the lawless bad folk. And over the soldiers' heads, and the soldiers all look, you know, horribly um, gruesome and angry. And, you know, Thomas Preston is not between the soldiers and the crowd. Now he's behind them and clearly saying, fire! You know, and like (laughs) (laughs) waving his sword forward right over the soldiers' heads is a sign that says, Butcher's Hall. <laughs> yeah, And, you know, there was no Butcher's Hall there, but that is a great way to let people know, <laughs> oh, well, these guys are butchers. Um, so, you know, it, it paints a really binary portrait. Um, and, you know, I, to come back to Serena's book again, she actually starts the book with that image and asks us what's missing, right? What's missing is like that, that image divides the town from the soldiers when in fact, it's the massacre that divides the town from the soldiers. But at the moment that that act of violence happened, they were deeply stitched together. And I think, you know, part of the emotional power of the event is that it's your friends and loved ones firing on your friends and loved ones. Oh my gosh. Um, 
So yeah, the Revere image um, begins to seal the the perception um, outside of Boston and certainly has been a touchstone for a long period here in Boston. And that's not even the only imagery he creates reflecting the massacre. I think he was also the artist uh, behind the images of the four coffins that appeared in, was it the Massachusetts it's, Spy? I think it's the Boston Gazette. Yeah. There you go. The the issue that appears exactly one week, right? So it's a weekly paper and it just mm-hmm. happened that it had gone to press on the day that the shootings happened. So the March 12th edition has four coffins with the, um, with the names of the, the victims. He's also, um, we, we think he's the artist who drew the, there's a sketch um, in the holdings of the Boston Public Library showing where the soldiers were standing, mm-hmm. where the townhouse was, where the victims fell. Um, everyone's best guess is that it was used as an exhibit at the trial of the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think there's good reason to believe that that Revere was the person who drew that image as well. Yeah, if I remember, I'll put an image of that uh, sketch in the show notes this week. I saw it at a special exhibition at the library a few years back. Uh, he also, Revere also on the first anniversary of the massacre, he illuminates his house and I don't know how to exactly describe what he does, but he, he uses all his windows almost like projection screens to have different images of the victims of the massacre, the, the events of the massacre, the blood rendered very vividly, the closest thing to a, a movie they would have had at the time almost. Yeah, it's a very dramatic um, uh, scene. And, you know, that that's a tradition that that Boston radicals have been using for quite a while. So um, in 1766, when the news arrives in Boston in May of 66, that the Stamp Act had been repealed by Parliament, the town's all ready to go with a town-wide illumination to celebrate. Um, and in the courtyard of one of the houses um, adjacent to the Liberty Tree, um, they do a similar kind of illumination with, you, you know, you, you put up a scrim with an image on it and then you back it with really bright lanterns. So it, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it brings to life at nighttime the, the scene. Um, so yeah, Revere, Revere is, uh, is I think a great showman, um, in some ways for in revolutionary mm-hmm. Boston. So what other ways were Bostonians remembering the massacre and the massacre victims during this? In between period, when the armed hostilities haven't begun yet, what are people doing to remember the the massacre during that five year window? I think it's worth pointing to two different um, uh, strands here, and one is in the legal context, right? So memory mm-hmm. is deeply implicated in the trial of the soldiers. Um, and I just want to touch on that briefly, but the other piece is the sort of public memory that's taking shape. Um, each anniversary, um, starting in 1771, when the town gathers in Old South Meeting House to hear, um, an oration commemorating the loss of the victims and reflecting on how to honor their sacrifice, um, in the cause of liberty. So, um, if I can take those one at a time, um, the trial is, I think, a really interesting, opportunity for us to explore how memory is almost immediately bound up with storytelling about who belongs inside that circle of we in we the people. Um, and I mean that because, um, you know, the 
everybody understood that the easiest way to defend the soldiers was to try the town, right? To say the soldiers were acting in self-defense. They felt that their lives were threatened. The town became incredibly aggressive. And um, it's really the responsibility of the reckless mob in the street um, for what happened. Anybody would have behaved in the way that the soldiers did if they thought their lives were threatened. Fair enough. John Adams takes the job of defending the soldiers, and Adams has done a good job, uh, or did a good job for the rest of his life, of telling a fantastically heroic story about, <laughs> you know, why he took the job of defending the soldiers. And I think it's partly right. I mean, I, I don't disagree that um, that he believed deeply that um, everyone has a right to representation, and that in a country of laws. Um, even the villains need to be represented appropriately. And, you know, it's, it's about the law and the facts. Um, and also about the representation of the province that Massachusetts could be a fair arbiter of the law, even though the reputation was that we were a lawless bunch of thugs. That's right. British soldiers could get a fair trial. And, and I think that's, that's been the frequent rejoinder is yes. Um, that was a very <laughs> important part of Boston's struggle to position itself as a responsible community within the English, within the British Empire. It certainly had, um, political benefits to be able to, to say that. I, I think if you dig down even a little bit deeper, right, the Whigs didn't want that defense to be mounted, right? So really what Adams is doing when he takes the job of defending the soldiers is he's mounting a double defense. So he has to defend the soldiers against the charge of manslaughter or murder, but he has to defend the town against the charge implicit that they were the aggressors, right? So what mm -hmm. is the solution? And we know that that's on his mind because there's a moment at which his, um, his fellow attorney in on the defense team, Josiah Quincy says, look, you know, the way to do this is, is just to make it about the, the mob. And, and Adam says, well, I'm not going to participate if that's going to be the strategy. I'm walking away. That's not an argument I'm going to be associated with. So he was really committed and his solution to this little dilemma here um, was to draw a distinction between what he called the good people of Boston and those who incited the violence. So he doesn't deny that the soldiers felt threatened. In fact, he foregrounds that argument. But who were they threatened by? Not the good people of Boston, not all those people dressed in their genteel clothes huddled under the tower of First Church who were only innocent victims. No, it's that motley rabble, right? It's the, um, and his words, right? The Jack Tars, the Irish Teagues, the Negroes, and the Saucy Boys, right? The, like, it is, it is the outsiders to our town who are responsible for this, and the good people of Boston um, were not. So what he's done, all those people were Bostonians, right? And what he's right. done at a at just with one quick rhetorical flourish is he's drawn a distinction between who legitimately belongs in his mind in the circle of we and those who are outside of it. And 
you know, we should take note of that because as we struggle as Americans today to come to terms with some of these same questions, who gets to count? Whose voice gets to be heard? We're dealing with the legacy of a revolutionary generation that drew distinctions that may be at odds with the distinctions we would want to draw today. And we should say that out loud. That's how memory is used in the trial, right? Let's, let's shape our memory um, and, and create these categories where we can place the different actors and we'll remember them this way. There were the crazy bunch over here and there were the staid and, and sober bunch over here. And that's part of the work of remembering and making the memory of this safe. The public remembering that happens within Old South Meeting House each year, and it continues until 1783, is of real interest to me too. Um, and in part because this March 5th on the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, we are going to ask some orators um, or some public figures to give short orations in the tradition that the town began in, in 1771. So will they be reading from the original Boston Massacre orations, or are they creating their own no, new we're, addresses? We're asking people to say their own words. And what we've told them is basically what I would say um, to you now about what was going on in those orations during the 1770s. So those orations were not about the past. They were about the future. So the all of the orators took a moment to remember those whose lives were lost. But the rest of the oration was about, so what can we do to ensure that their sacrifice, that their lives were not given in vain? How can we ensure that we advance the cause of justice for our own community? And remember, Boston was deeply divided. So the public remembering that's happening is partly about mobilizing the power of memory to bring people together and to make common cause. Um, and it's very deliberate and I think quite successful at the time. And there are some incredible orations. You know, the one that really stands out is the one given by Joseph Warren in 1775, which we can talk about in more detail if you'd like. But, but I think, you know, this is what I want to say to people about this whole arc of remembering that's going to happen um, between now, 2020, the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, and 2026, when we'll be remembering the 250th anniversary of um, American independence. And I think, you know, we we can do the anniversaries where it's all about the past and, you know, we can come together and do a reenactment and, you know, and, and enjoy the appearance of people in period costumes. And I think all that's important because it helps us mm -hmm. to vividly imagine the past as a human experience. But I think we're best served by saying, no, anniversaries are not about the past. They're about the future. Right. And we honor, we honor the true, meaning of this memory by saying, how can we use it to articulate for ourselves a vision of the world we want to live in tomorrow? 
and to advance our ongoing conversation as Americans about what we mean when we say we the people, about who gets to have a voice, about who has a seat at the table when we talk about the laws that will govern us and the the society that we want to live in. So um, that's what we're trying to do on this March 5th is, you know, we'll have Governor Baker um, in in the room and we've got several other um, public officials or community leaders who are going to be talking in the same way about, okay, what is our vision and how can we use this memory to advance our cause um, as a as a city and as a country um, in this moment of need? So how does the memory or the public commemoration of the massacre change through the Revolutionary War years and then into the early Republic? At the beginning of the war, everyone flees and there's probably not an oration. Um, but the reason I was thinking of 1783 is because, um, I do know that when the town, when black abolitionists revived the tradition of the massacre oration, in 1858, after the Dred Scott decision, they explicitly include the um, the minutes from the town meeting of 1783 signed by William Cooper um, and the organizer, in, interestingly, of the of the observance in 1858 is William Cooper Nell, a black abolitionist. So he's got that William Cooper thing going, but <laughs> they, he explicitly says this is the first time since 1783 that the town has been gathered for an, a, an official oration remembering the Boston massacre. Um, so uh, without having done the research, I'm assuming that there were a few in there that were spotty, but I think the important thing for us to remember or to note is that when the war ends, officially in 1783, the nation makes a very explicit decision that official remembrance of the revolutionary period will be a celebration of independence. And that's mm -hmm. the date that we choose to observe as our official national observance of the success of the revolutionary cause. Um, and in the midst of all of that, you know, the the 4th of July orations are a big thing in the years leading up to the Civil War. But here come black abolitionists saying, no, no, we actually think it would be really helpful for a national discourse to gather on March 5th and remember the Boston Massacre again. And they do that in 1858. And I think it's just incredibly important for us to attend to what's going on there. So William Cooper Nell starts pushing not only to, to recognize the memory of the massacre, but he also is pushing to put Crispus Attucks back at the center of that story. At, at that point, had his part in the massacre fallen to the wayside? Um, I don't think it was lost, but it hadn't ever been elevated as anything special and different mm -hmm. from the sacrifice of the other victims. Um, and there's something very specific going on in that period of um, increasing uh debate and argument over the institution of slavery that is going to culminate with the civil war just a few years later. Um, and I, and I think we need to understand a little bit about the, the contemporary discourse at the time. Um, so one of the arguments that slaveholders and their allies were using to defend the institution of slavery in the face of the increasingly vocal abolitionist movement um, was an argument that went something like this. Um, you can't end slavery because 
what would you do with former slaves? Everybody knows that you can't make citizens of people um, of African descent because, and they're drawing on a, on an old idea of civic virtue here, the hallmark of citizenship is the ability to sacrifice on behalf of the nation and the common good, and people of African descent can't do that and therefore can't be made citizens. So, you know, okay, that's first of all an argument that just does not compute to 21st century listeners, but it had its own legs in the 1840s and the 1850s. But here come black abolitionists who point out, uh, you know, we don't have to pretend that this can't be done or that it can. Like we have actual examples and it's useful to just meet my friend Crispus Attucks over here, right? <laughs> he he gave his life for the cause of liberty, and you know we could call him the first person to have died on behalf of this enterprise that we now call the United States. So what you got, right? And mm-hmm. um, and that's what it. I mean, they, you know, they, it's not an accident that they organized this first what comes to be called um, Crispus Attucks Day observance in March of 1858, which is the first anniversary of the Boston Massacre after the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision had basically agreed with the argument that um, that that black people couldn't be citizens and had made that the official ruling and law of the land, right? So black abolitionists gather at Faneuil Hall to revive this tradition and to make this argument, like, you know, Crispus Attucks is part of our founding story. And, um, and, you know, what interests me and what I think should interest all of us today is that they're using the founding story not as part of an argument about what, what the accurate history of the American Revolution is. They're using it as an intervention in the conversation in 1858 about who gets to be part of we the people. And, you know, that this is the linkage that we're trying to make in our work at Revolutionary Spaces. We are still having conversation and debate and argument about that same question. Who gets to be in the circle of we the people? And we can use these anniversaries that are going to be deeply um, in, engaging to a broad cross-section of the public as we approach 2026, we can use these anniversaries to make the same kinds of interventions. Let's use it as a platform for conversation about these questions that we'll never resolve forever. They're, each generation has to grapple with them. And here's our opportunity to use the history to advance our conversation about who we are today and who we want to be as a people together in the coming years. I don't know much, or at least I couldn't put my finger on how things have changed in the memory of the massacre since that time. But I know they, I know that our memory must have continued to evolve because our identity is, as a people's continued to evolve. So what kind of changes do you think have been seen in the course of the 20th century and our, our early peak here into the 21st? Well, you know, one of the things that was most of interest to us, um, or, or in some ways a revelation when we started, um, so we're, we're mounting an exhibit that, uh, called Reflecting Addicts that will open, um, on March 5th and that pulls together some of the, um, 
some of the visual record of the different ways in which Attucks has been remembered across time and also helps us try to reconstruct who the man was and what his background was to the extent that we can get at it. Um, one of the things that really struck us was you hit a certain point in the 20th century where the memory of Attucks becomes commodified and um, and is, you know, subject to becoming, you know, just part of American consumer enterprise in the way that, you know, bobbleheads of the other founding fathers <laughs> are, right? So we, we collected a bunch of like trading cards that where addicts is one of the founding fathers or the, the Jim Beam bottle from the bicentennial <laughs> that has a big fat picture of Christmas addicts on it. Why? We don't know. But I think that what it says is there was a kind of, official blessing of addicts as part of the pantheon and now you know feel free to mythologize the way you do with everybody else <laughs> um so that's happening in consumer culture in interesting ways but i don't want to say that the struggle um for racial justice in Boston that addicts has the memory of addicts has been one strand of or one part of the conversation around for a long time went away. I mean, you know, it's really important to recognize the Boston Equal Rights League um, is still here in Boston. The historic Boston Equal Rights League is still working to mount Christmas Addicts Day commemorations every year. And Melnia Cass, who was the head of that organization during the 1970s, um, made sure that that the the subject was um, part of our official commemorations and was put forward for a conversation during the middle of the 1970s as we went through the bicentennial celebrations. But it's also the moment at which Boston's going through the busing crisis and having very difficult conversations about um, about our segregated schools and about the challenges of creating a more integrated city, um, you know, and opening wounds that we still haven't fully healed from as a city. So, um, I, you know, addicts is there as part of that conversation, again, being used to drive the conversation as a touchstone, not necessarily that it's, it's, um, a guide, but it's an opportunity to mount the conversation that we need to have. Um, and I, I think this is, you know, it feels like, um, you know, we're still as a city grappling with the echoes of that busing crisis in the 1970s and the wounds that that opened, but it does feel as though we're at an inflection point. And I think as a city, um, you know, it's important that we tell the story of our founding era because it's so important to what it means to be Boston and a Bostonian that we tell that story in a way that allows all people to see themselves in it and to feel as though it's their story too. And, you know, I think the power to come all the way back to um, the way that revolutionary spaces wants to, um, engage people in exploring the deep story that lives in the old state house and old South meeting house. Um, the, the power of um, helping people to surface the, the debate about we, the people in the building and come into those buildings and continue that debate today is that we all have equal claim to that story because it doesn't matter when you 
you know, you can have a Mayflower ancestor or you can, um, your family could have arrived in Boston five years ago, um, as immigrants from, uh, from other lands. And it's just as much your story because you're entering into our city, which is still debating who gets to be part of the we and we the people. And that's the conversation we're having in every neighborhood, not just in Boston, but around the country right now. And to the extent that the story that lives in these buildings is a tool to help us answer those questions for our own time in a more um, just and equitable way, I think it it it's just as much um you know, uh, it, it's everybody's story in equal way. So if we can get to 2026 and be telling our city's history in that way, so that when a Patriots game is on TV and you see the uh, iconic buildings of Boston and the old state house or old South meeting house is up on the screen, um, we feel like no matter who we are, it's, that's my building, right? That, that'll say something about change in this city if we can really get there. So as you talk about seeing the faces of the old state house and old South meeting house flash up on screen during a Patriots game and having all Bostonians hopefully feel a sense of ownership and pride in those institutions, what's coming up this coming week through both these institutions to commemorate the Sester Centennial of the Boston Massacre? We are doing some exciting events uh, in the first half of March, but I, I, I want to say that um, we see this as a, a commemoration that spans the whole year. So the March, the March 5th and related events are really just the kickoff to a series of programs that will unfold across the entire year. Excellent. Um, and those are programs that we're offering to the to the city of Boston and to our region and to visitors from out of town. Um, but I think it's also important for me to note that there are programs and content that have been developed in partnership with um, people from uh, all over our region as well. So we've been working in dialogue with community partners for the better part of the last year to develop the questions that are animating um, the, the programs that are going to roll out this year. And it's really um, for us an opportunity to introduce an, a new kind of practice in our work, which is um, really trying to get out of the business of telling people what the past means and into the business of bringing people together to join with us in making meaning around the past, right? So we want, we want to co-author, um, our work with, um, with partners in the community who see an opportunity to use this, um, this historic material to get at the issues that matter to them today. Um, so what does that look like in practice? We're not trying to do everything all at once, but we are, um, for us, the, the big kickoff is a speaking program on March 5th, which will be, as I said, sort of in the tradition of those orations at different moments in Boston, uh, massacre orations reflecting on the history as a way to give our audience a charge um, to carry forward the cause of creating a more just and equitable city. Um, so that'll be keynoted, as I said, by Governor Baker. Um, we're hoping that the mayor will be there. Um, there are a number of other uh, prominent public figures who I hope will be there to um, to share their own ideas about that. Um, we're There will be a reenactment um, of the 
of the incident um, on Saturday night, March 7th. Um, and we've got a fantastic and dedicated group of volunteers and living historians who are not just going to do the reenactment of the shooting in the evening, um, but we'll be spending the whole day on Saturday in both Old South Meeting House and the Old State House and also in the city blocks between the two buildings doing doing living history interpretation, talking with people about what it was like to live in an occupied city, um, sort of setting the scene for the commemoration. So um, those are the two programs that are happening um, for Revolutionary Spaces. And we're also opening at the beginning of March um, a new exhibition called Reflecting Addicts, which will be a touchstone for, um, for uh, you can come in and explore um, the history of addicts and the visual record telling us how he's been remembered across time um, on your own, or um, there will be gallery tours and programs. There will be conversations about how we take this information and turn it into something actionable in our communities today. Um, and then, uh, you know, as we roll forward, so that's, that's the spring season. Um, you know, there'll be smaller programs that will happen throughout the spring. During the summer, our activities will be highlighted by, um, a very exciting work of public art. We've commissioned a nationally visible artist who has just moved to our city to, um, to reflect on the, the theme of race, citizenship, and memory that is bound up with this story and, um, and to, to use art to put a series of challenging questions to our community. Um, so I'm, I'm, we're still at the point where, um, we're finalizing the concept design for that. So I'm not at liberty to tell you too much about it, but it's <laughs> coming during the summer and will be up throughout the, the middle of the summer months and our programming, smaller programs during the summer months will be built around the art and dialogue with the artist and with the community groups that have been engaged in, um, in developing that work of of art. Um, and then, tease. yeah, no, it, I mean, and I, what I would encourage people to do is just, um, get on our mailing list and make sure that they, um, they're, we're, uh, sending out email updates to you when, um, when we have them, uh, cause all this will be coming into better focus as the year goes on. But also during the summer, there will be, um, we hope a new small play. So we've done a lot with historical theater lately and we're, mm-hmm. um, we're working on, uh, a piece that is um, just going to be a small drama that puts Christmas addicts into conversation with activists and uh, and community voices from different moments in history. So it's sort of a cross-generational conversation. What would Christmas addicts want to say to somebody who's involved with Black Lives Matter? Um, and what would activists today want to say to Christmas addicts? What would addicts um, have to say to Black abolitionists? And what would they want to say to him? So um, that will be... Uh, up during the summer months and um, on view at Old South Meeting House. Um, we don't have the schedule finalized, but again, that'll that'll come up on our calendar soon enough. Um, and then another play during the fall, the fall season is going to be anchored by Blood on the Snow, which is the play I was describing earlier that sort of brings to life in the council chamber where the history happened an hour in real time on the day after the Boston Massacre and is an opportunity for people to reflect on um, that 
that liminal moment after violence happens when we're trying to figure out how to put our communities back together again, which I think is an experience that a lot of us, unfortunately, can relate to in this um, crazy 21st century that we're living in. So if people want to get updates about the programming throughout the year as it happens, or if they want to find out more about revolutionary spaces, where should they be looking online to find out more get on your mailing list and keep up with everything that's going to be coming up in 2020. So the place to go is to our new website, revolutionaryspaces.org, which, um, you know, please have patience because we're a new organization. So the website is still in development. And um, I would encourage people to check back regularly because um, we'll be adding more information as we go. Um, and there is a way to sign up for um, for email updates there. So um, when all else fails, just put yourself on our list and we'll make sure that we get the information out to you as it comes online. Well, Nat Shidley, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on. To learn more about Revolutionary Spaces and the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 174. We'll have links to the full schedule of events commemorating the Sester Centennial of the Massacre, as well as a press release announcing the creation of Revolutionary Spaces. Well, make sure to include copies of the engravings of the massacre created by Henry Pelham and Paul Revere, as well as a copy of the sketch map that was also created by Paul Revere. We'll also include photos taken by yours truly at past reenactments, so you know what you're in for. And of course, we'll have a link to information about the Boston Massacre, a family history, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. And if you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 